But that's that mentoring experience. And that's what podcasts and that's what we hope our podcast become for people is an opportunity to to almost like a masterclass situation. Because uh, there are teachers out there who, who are rock starring, uh, who understand what it takes to do what we do. But nobody knows who they are. Nobody's heard their voice. No one's, no one's, you know, there's not a camera in every teacher's room capturing all these moments and, and putting them in a file. And you may have never experienced it, and then you may listen to it on a podcast, and then all of a sudden you experience it, and it's like, oh, I remember them saying, okay, this is how you, okay, got it. And even though it may be like, no, nah, I can't do that, but it gives me an idea. It sparks an idea in my mind of what I can do. Welcome back, everybody, to the ABCs of Inspired Teaching. My name is Kyle Krieger, joined this morning by my guy, Wilkie Law. Will, how are you? I'm doing wonderful, man. Wonderful, wonderful. I've been telling everybody, it's been amazing. You know, I, I watched a story about our words casting spells on our life. And the guy told a story that the reason why the words are spelled, because they're literally spells. And everything that comes out of your mouth, it, it it's going to happen. And so I've had an amazing week because I've said it was amazing. And despite what went on, it stayed amazing. So mm -hmm. I'm telling you, latch on to that, my brother. That, that's that's where my life is right now. Mm, that's great. And we are excited to be joined by a friend, longtime, longtime podcast guest, uh, good friend, and generally just a great dude. And I got to ask how, before we get into it, Come on. that picture you posted, it must have been like two months ago where you still had like the curly flow how how old is that picture hal bowman dude i don't even know but here's the funny thing is um you know when, when that all went down i was taking the teaching of rockstar thing serious brother and i was bringing back the 80s and i just refused to give up and uh <laughs> and what happened was i was on the tv show i think it was wake up cleveland or maybe wake up cincinnati or some morning thing and and uh, co-host was talking to me and they talked to a parent of a teenager and I thought man I can fix this and so I was talking to this frustrated mom about her kid and I'm just doing my teen whisperer thing and I'm so proud of this I'm in the audience I brought it home to show the wife look at me look at me look how awesome I am and then there's a shot of me going in the audience and I see this glimmer off the shimmer glimmer off the back of my head and I'm like oh my god what is that and she goes that's your bald spot like my ball spot. I got a ball spot. She goes, Yeah. Like, man, why don't you tell me? She goes, Everybody knows, like, you're five foot three. We're all looking right down at it anyway. It's right there. So that day, dude, I went and got my head shaved. And just this, a couple of weeks ago, I decided, you know what? I'm not going to do it on top of the head. I'm going on the bottom of the head. And so I started growing this wacky beard. And I went back and have it trimmed at the same barber shop. And as soon as I walked in, this is probably. He said, right, you're the guy that shaved his head because of your boss spot. I was like, yeah, brother, damn right. That's me. Dude. I mean, it's, you know, it would be, if you would have still had it, it'd be super in style right now. If you just trimmed it down into some kind of mullet, man, you'd be in with the Dude, kids. Especially in the rural schools, baseball team mullet. That's the big thing, brother. Oh, we have <laughs> uh, up here where I live in Minnesota, they have every year they have the all hockey hair team. 
like yeah. when they play when they show the state hockey tournament on TV, they literally have an all state for hockey hair, and it's just epic. And I'll tell you a funny story. I have a kid at my school, a seventh grader, who's so committed to his mullet that his mom takes him to the barbershop and he gets perms like once a month to make sure his flow is curly. Oh, you're talking about the Kentucky waterfall. Yeah, that's a style, man. There's a there used to be a website called Mullet Hunter. And so what you mm-hmm. try to do, you try to get a picture of the mullet out in its natural habitat and uh, just see one in the wild. And then they had all different categories. And I remember one of the categories was the Kentucky waterfall. Dude. <laughs> and that was the, the perm in the back. Oh, I could talk about that forever. So, but Hal, we, br- we brought you back on because we're trying to get back to, you know, what what made us successful with the podcast in the past, which is bringing on educators and having conversations. So could you give our listeners a, a bit of your background in education and, and what you're currently doing for those that might not know? Yeah, man. So for years, you know, I, w- I did the teacher thing and I was in the classroom and uh, I started out as a band director. And, you know, I had a, you know, I was in the band in all through high school, growing up, my, all my influences were band directors and especially men. And, uh, you know, that's what I wanted to do. And I got into it and loved it. And it did the, you know, Texas competitive band director thing. It's super competitive and, and time consuming and just huge budgets. And, and then I realized, dude, after, you know, six, seven years, I'm doing a whole lot of uniforms and fundraising and band boosters and summer band and buses and permission slips and, I'm doing very little teaching, honestly. And I, and I wanted to get more in front of kids. And and I was it sounds crazy, but I was actually jealous of classroom teachers. Like, I wanted to do that. And um, and also wanted all the kids. Like, in band, you're, it's a very select group. It's a kid that can afford the alto saxophone, the kid that can attend lessons and pay for stuff. I have parents to drag them around the afternoons for rehearsals. And I wanted the other kids as well. And so I got recertified in language arts and English and uh, biology and some other subjects and started jumping around classrooms every couple of years. And then I finally started teaching um, some mentoring programs and some leadership and personal growth stuff at the high school level. And uh, I had an amazing assistant principal who went on to become a principal at a different school. And, And she goes, you know, she said, you know, that when at the high school, all those kids that you get, because a lot of my kids were coming back from an alternative learning center, and um, and they give them to me. And my job was to integrate them into the school and shut down the recidivism rate of them going back to the ALC and, and connecting with somebody on campus to have relationships. And she goes, I need you. I need that at my school. Will you come tell my teachers how you do what you do? And I did. And then I, another principal called and said, hey, I heard you tell teachers how you do your thing with your gangsters. I'm like, yeah, dude. And then, you know, because of my school it was like the thing man it was you know we had shirts made up it said bowman's 30 and uh like you know we just kind of rated these kids and and uh, really effective then the speaking thing just kind of took off and next thing i know i'm on the road and doing conferences and hosting my own conferences and uh, and today man it is um i it's the same thing i'm working with schools directly um, and just empowering educators to to get reconnected with their purpose and their passion for making a difference in the lives of kids and and and, and doing my thing at conferences and um, it is it, I've never been more um, busy and dude at the same time um, never been more uh, as hard as it is out there I've never been more just excited 
about teachers and teaching and what they're doing in the classrooms for their kids. It's just amazing to see. Mm -hmm. You know that. Now, I'm going to be honest. The last time you were on, I don't remember you telling me you were a band director. Yeah, man. I remember the English teacher, but I don't remember a band director because I was a band. I was I was the band nerd in school. Like that was my that was my tribe. And so was Kyle. Both trumpet players. I was. <laughs> oh, well, I was. I was. I, I'll be. I'll be honest. Like at one point, like end of middle school, I was like me and my best friend were like the last chair trumpets, and we didn't have any baritones. Yeah. And our band director was like, how would you like to be first and second chair baritone? And I was like, you bet. Get at me. So I moved <laughs> I moved from brass to low brass in high school. That is hilarious. Dude, when I was a band director, I was taught in a tiny little town, a little one-day school we caught him. And, um, and he, I, you know what I would do to, to the with the elementary kids? I would just, whatever instrument I needed at the high school. When we start recruiting for elementary, I just take the most popular, biggest football player, cheerleader kids, all those kids. All right, listen, man, hold a trombone. You don't have to play it. Just act like you play the trombone. And so when we go down to the high school, all these kids want to be the trombone player because that kid seems cool. Dude, Good marketing strategy. <laughs> it is. Do whatever it takes, man. Um, Before we ask a follow-up, you know, Will, because, you know, you were just telling me, Will, that you got kids coming back from Compass. This is just more of a personal inquiry. How do you feel like you make a bigger difference when you're working directly with the school or when you are at a conference or out on the road? Here's the thing about um, I'm super aware. I'm really, really self-aware of what's happening at a conference, especially when I host. So I host a ton of conferences in, in smaller communities. And um, we're like shows coming up in Lufkin, Texas, Texarkana, Longview, you know, smaller community. And the people that show up at my Teaching Rockstar events, they're already awesome. Like, they're awesome because they go to this stuff. And I know I'm preaching to the choir. I get it. And, and what we have at those conferences is a, a whole tribe of like-minded people. And there's this synergy in the room of this emotional synergy that we're on the same page. We're all loving and compassionate and caring. And that feels good and it's really fun. But I also know that if I go to a school, there's a lot of people sitting in that audience that would never sign up for a conference, especially mine. Mm -hmm. So at the conference, it's a whole bunch of people that want it. At the school, it's a bunch of people that need it. And, and so it looks and it feels very different at a school. But what's great about it is when I'm, you know, doing some role modeling and I'm playing around and, and acting like a kid, they know exactly who that kid is because they all had that kid in that school together. You know what I mean? And so that that's a cool thing. It, and as far as shifting the trajectory of a campus, yeah, when three or four teachers show up at a conference, they can go out and have an impact. But when I spend all day on campus, man, we can really – um, you just open up the hearts and the souls of educators and get in there and do some real work that translates and making a difference in the lives of their kids. That's solid. You know, that comparison of the people want it versus the people who need it. And it's interesting how most of the time the people who need it are not seeking what they really need. You know, crazy. Here's mm -hmm. what, dude, I could talk about this forever. Just the psychology of it is very bizarre in our world. And that is like if you are a brand new agent and you sell insurance and you're fresh out of college and you're 23, 
you know, and, and you're going to struggle and, and, you know, you're not making money. You don't have any clients. The only thing you would think about is let me go find somebody really successful and go and watch what they do. And you would go sit in their car and follow them around to appointments in the morning, see what they do, see how they talk. But in education, it's really strange. The vast majority of people, when they come in and they start to struggle, instead of going to seek help, what they typically tend to do is cut out that piece of blue construction paper that fits perfectly on the window on the door and when i see that construction paper going up as the shield you know so don't peek in here don't see what's going on because they feel so bad and see that's my theory my theory is when a teacher struggles it's hard for them to ask for help because they feel like they're failing the kids and it's such a painfully emotional experience if you really say that out loud mm -hmm. and identify what that emotion is so generally human nature what they tended to do is seek out people just like them so they're going to circle up and lunch bunch it up with other teachers that are struggling, other young or, or lacking experience. And, and dude, this is the only profession on the planet where we have the same expectation of a first minute teacher, a first day as we do as a 30 year veteran teacher, like a, a true professional expert in education. We have the same exact expectations in terms of measurement with data and assessment and all that. And it, and it is so terrifying for a young teacher. You know, you touched on something that, that just hit because that standard that you're expected to do the exact same, it, it, it's just mind blowing. And you're rated on the same scale is mind blowing because I just had a student teacher experience, by the way, who was amazing. Like she walked in, she took charge of the classroom. She was able to work the kids. But there were so many inconsistencies within what she did, and she was able to notice it. And her, her statement to me was, I would be afraid still walking in day one, going into the classroom knowing that this is mine and having to do this without someone present. And I said, it, it, it is scary. And rightfully so, I said, but here's a I'm scared first day of school, yeah. walking into the classroom, you know, because it's still that saying it. The only thing that changes is that I feel a little bit more comfortable that I've seen enough situations to where I can navigate it. But yeah. you're right. That first year teacher, they don't have the like they say, you don't know what you don't know. And that's the place that they're in. And it's like and no one's trying to give them that. No, man, I'll tell you a good metaphor that I like to look at for our first year teachers. And by the way, let me just shout out um, Rob Carroll, Dr. Rob Carroll. And I don't know if he does this with his students. I think he does. But I know when his daughter first started teaching and he's one of my faves, he's on my Mount Everest of um, or I'm sorry, Mount Rushmore of principals. And he is repurposed now. He's uh, he's teaching at the university level. But I remember the, his daughter took a picture of her first day of teaching fresh out of the college. And right there on her door, she's, you know, you know, doing a selfie in front of the door right there. It says, I don't remember what it says, but it says, today we are studying and it has a fill in the blank. And she put something up there. Please come in our classroom, visit us and give me feedback on how I'm doing as a teacher. This is on her first day. Wow. And you talk about just an insane amount of courage. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because what's going to happen for every first-year teacher, because I don't know about you guys, it happened in my 20th year as well as my first, but you get so overwhelmed and you can't see the inconsistencies and you can't see where you're dropping the ball. And it's the little things you don't see. And it's so overwhelming that 
for a first year teacher, it's a, there's a, a a video I saw of a kid that was told to wash the dishes. Nine year old kid, a kid is just bawling, standing in front of the dishes because they're piled up all over the sink, and they're crying. The kid's crying because he doesn't know where to start. So you think, dude, that's the same thing. Our educators in the classroom, but they they're, they don't even know how to manage thirty kids let alone deliver the content, let alone differentiation, let alone, I mean, or taking attendance or assessment, like all the stuff, man, it's just way too much. And I think that's why a lot of times they shut down and that if we're failing teachers anywhere for me, man, one of the big places is mentoring them in the first five, six years of teaching, not the, you know, a mentorship typically looks like, Hey, here's your veteran teacher. You have to have lunch with them once every two weeks. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> that's not mentoring. And I think they need an instructional mentor. They need a life balance mentor. They need an emotional mentor. They need three or four people on a team to nurture them into being a great teacher. Well, we um we're friends with some uh two teachers out at the college level, one's at Ohio U and one's at James Madison. Um, Jen and Mira on Instagram, they're at teaching is intellectual, and they talk about how in their eyes, when they prep a kid at the college level, they are then ready to do on the job training. Like they try to teach their kids that you don't have the expectation of like, you need to know everything. It's going to like, you got to tell these kids, it's like, it's going to be a steep learning curve, especially if you're someone like me, which I know in the big cities, whether it's Houston or Miami or DC or Vegas or Phoenix or wherever, you're getting a lot of Midwestern kids like me that are coming into a totally foreign environment. Yeah. And, and the other thing you said about like a little bit ago about the pressure you feel like I can't imagine the pressure now with the, the current, you know, not only political climate of trying to be super delicate with the things that you teach and worried about whether you know, someone's going to go behind your back and talk about what you said, but also like I'm in my 12th year and I still worry that at any point my principal could pull the rug, could pull the rug out from under me. Yeah. And I can't imagine being early in the career and, and having to feel all of that pressure. Yeah. It's insane. You know, but, but dude, you know, in Houston, the funny thing is we have so many, teacher shortages i was talking to this teacher yesterday and she's like what i really want to do is teach this and teach that but it, it doesn't align with our teaks and i want to teach that and this and that i'm like hey man at this point we have ten thousand openings in the district like you can teach whatever you want no one's firing you out of this year yeah and that's, and that's you know, rough out there dude and that's why we see teachers i mean what have we lost I can't even get my head around this number, but it's it's out there. You can look it up. It says um, over the last, uh, I want to say it was since like December of 2020, last year and a half or two years, we have um, lost over 575,000 people out of public education. Total all positions, teachers, paras, people just, just burned out, just cannot do it anymore. It's a half a million. It's insane. So if there's what, three and a half, or 4 million teachers, that's like over 10% of yep. the and workforce. So those are the people that left. And other people have come in to the uh, profession, but you know, it's, it's, um, that's a very different personality than um, 
you know, there's, well, I'll tell you where we're just missing is the passion in, in the younger years, man. Like, like every teacher I know, great teachers, they had that moment where they realized, oh my gosh, I'm a teacher. And that was when they're eight or nine or 10. And what's terrifying for me as a professional is, you know, going to these universities where I can be, I, I mean, I don't want to call them out, but I've been at universities where, you know, I speak when they come back from student teaching and they turn in their student teaching project, which they think really matters in the scope of things and it doesn't. And then they listen to me for the day. Well, those universities, seven, eight years ago, I would be in front of 250 kids that are graduating. Now I'm in front of 20, 25, maybe. Wow. And then if you think about kids today, who really wants to become a teacher after these last two and a half, three years? Like who really says, oh my gosh, I'm so passionate to do that. Look at those people. They're so happy. Like, you know, we just don't have those kids with those feelings anymore. Let me ask you a question. Uh, do you think that if there were a more, how do I want to put it? Um, if the salary for teachers were was was more indicative of what you actually do and your value, do you think you would have more people coming into the profession at that point? Um, you know, I want to say as it is right now, yes, but they're still going to leave. Like if we're paying a hundred grand and you're miserable and there's no amount of money, it could be two hundred fifty. I'm telling you, they're going to leave because it's so hard. If it's not in your heart, if it's not, if it's just what you do, you're not going to last. It has to be who you are. Like it has to be in your soul. It's almost as if you want to teach, you're probably not going to make it. Like this is for people that have to teach. I don't have an option. That's that's who I am. That's who I'm going to be. This is what I do for my life. This is my calling. They couldn't do anything else. It's that hard at this point. What I really believe, and by the way, heck yeah, let's pay our teachers like a true professional salary. In addition to that, it's, it's it, you know what it is, dude? It is those six emotional needs that I'm always talking about that we're just not meeting for teachers. Like they don't feel that they matter. They don't feel significant. They don't feel connected. They don't feel a part of something bigger than themselves. You know, the fuel for teaching is seeing the difference it's seeing graphic evidence that your work matters and that right now is my work with superintendents and principals man you, the only thing you should be focusing on right now is proving to your teachers that they're changing the lives of kids to give them evidence put kids in front of them after school in the library for your 40-minute faculty meeting and let kids tell these teachers the difference that's being made in their lives today because of the work like i think you know, there's, dude, there's so much to this. First of all, like we're numb to it. We're teachers are numb to it. Cause this is what we do. I guarantee you, if a teacher could explain what they do to just a lay person in public, that person would cry like, Oh my God, I can't believe you're heroic. But for a teacher, man, that's what he, that's Tuesday. <laughs> what do you mean heroic? This is what we do. It's like those pictures that drive me crazy, dude. I think we talked about this last time is Oh my God, I'm starting to sweat. I'm getting fired up. Listen, man, like, you know, those memes that you see on social media where it's like, I tell you a classic one is there's a kid, a, a, a young girl, she's autistic. She's on the stage in the cafetorium and she's laying down. They have the weighted blanket and coats on top of her. She's so overstimulated. One person in the school she connects with, with her teachers laying next to her on the stage, holding her, you know, while this kid is having a meltdown. And it gets a million views and, oh, my God, what a hero. I love her. What amazing teacher to lay on the ground with it. What? Dude, that happens every day. Like, that happens 
thousands of times a day in thousands of schools across the nation. And, but the problem with teachers, we see, dude, we see a kid crying and a teacher consoling a kid after traumatic on the way to get coffee down in the workroom and to get an extra and steal a ream of paper. And we just, oh, that's cute. And we just keep going. Like, that, no, man, it's not cute. A life is being changed because of this educator who is the most important, the most influential adult in the life of that kid. And I think, man, if we can get back to figuring out how to fill those emotional needs of those teachers, that they feel like they're not being met, feeling that you matter, feeling loved, feeling connected to your school family, to your classroom family, feeling a sense of consistency and certainty. Like that's the thing that we all need, man, right now is a sense of certainty, connection, significance, growth. They feel like we matter. If we could figure out that, that's the real paycheck to focus on. You know, it's funny you say that because I just met yesterday our team. You know, our district has given us the next four Fridays off, which yeah. I'm totally, I'm loving it. Uh, we're not, we're not off. The students have a holiday, but we have a work day. Uh, well, <clears throat> yesterday during our planning meeting, our assistant principal came in and was just like, hey, you know, just talk to me. Tell me what's going on. You know, she just wanted to know the vibe. This, again, teacher shortages. We have AP shortages. We have parent shortages. We have sub shortages. I mean, we have student, I mean, uh, special education inclusion teachers sub substituting classes so that's kids that's not getting services. We have secretaries leaving their posts to the front to go substitute classes. I mean, it is this the shortage. Like I say, when I say I feel it, and so we try not to burden her with too much of anything. We kind of internalize it, you know, as a team and we, we take care of it ourselves. But she actually came in and one of the things that, that one of the, our teachers said was, we just want to feel like we matter. We, we want to feel like we, we're noticed and we're recognized for what we do. And when she said that, you could see that the administrators, her, it changed for her because that cry out, just like you were saying, that's that that's that goal that that emotional connection with what i'm doing and how i feel this i what i do has worth because this kid who was who was hurt because of this now is consoled and is able to go on and now knows i have an ally on this campus but like you say we become numb to that because it happens so much yep it's fascinating it's like to watch in addition to that man <clears throat> what what we're being focused and and listen i'm not saying this is every school this is generally across the board there are exceptions for sure but the conversations around teachers and people talking at teachers no one's talking with teachers they're talking at teachers and typically what we find are all those metrics of we're looking at well we get this kid and well this kid well you know what man like data that's all that frontal cortex you know, rational mind thing that doesn't shift inspiration or motivation. You know, it's certainly, you know, no one's that, that is just survival talk for teachers, man. but to thrive, we have to talk about the emotional aspects of teaching. And that is changing a kid's life. That's the only thing anybody really wants to do. Use the, use the, use the content of our classroom, whatever that is, the subject matter doesn't even matter. Use the content to make a deep, profound, lifelong, significant difference in the life of a kid. And that's the only thing really teachers want to talk about. Look, man, the, the data is going to work itself out. It's going to be fine if we can talk about 
how to use the content of this classroom to make a difference in the kid's life. Because then the kid's going to want to be there. They want to be a part of that school family. Want to be in that classroom with that family, that leader of that family, which is the teacher. You know, sometimes, man, I think we just, the more way we try to measure stuff, the more we complicate things. When really this job, I'm not saying it's easy, but it is pretty simple. Yeah. Sim simple, simple, but not easy. Not easy, not dude. It is the, here's the thing, dude. If you, first of all, if you don't love it, it's, it's, it's impossible. I, I believe it. You, you can't survive if you don't love it. And if you do love it, it's going to be the most difficult yet rewarding work you could ever imagine. Yeah. And, and I think what you, you spoke to about wanting to feel seen and heard, and I've been talking to Will about this the entire year at my school, like, I don't know if it is a written policy or just like by practice, but I have an admin that is very much see no evil, hear no evil. If they can pretend that it doesn't exist, it doesn't, you know, and we get when you go, when you come with a concern or you say, this is what I've got going on, you're either patronized at best or basically told that your problem isn't an issue at worst. And it, it really puts you in a position where you are in that spot of like, why, why am I rowing? Like here I am like rowing this boat as hard as I can row it every single day. And I'm literally not going anywhere. Yeah. And, and, and I feel like even for me, I think I'm very fortunate. I've talked about it on this podcast a lot, like to have, to know that if I wanted to, like, if I had a shitty day on Wednesday, I could call you on your cell phone and you could talk me down hell. Like I'm lucky to have people in my life and like extended out of my in-school circle that I know I could go to, but I think I'm, I'm a minority in that of having real, yeah, for sure. re, real connections <laughs> because the other thing, and, and I'm not trying to say that social media is the devil. Cause I we wouldn't have connected with you if it wasn't for social media, but there's definitely a difference between someone who's in your contacts that you could call yep. and say, Hey, like I'm having a terrible day. I just need to talk to somebody and having 12,000 followers on Instagram. Dude, that whole thing is so. And I would disagree. I think it might be the devil. I think I think you're underestimating this, <laughs> the evil of the of the social media, brother. But you're right. Here's the thing, man. You know, teaching is such a crazy profession. In that, there's no if if someone's not immersed in the world of a teacher, they have no idea what you're talking about. Now they're gonna be pleasant. If people are respectful, they're gonna smile and look at you and nod, nod your head and give you a hug and pass your margarita. But they don't get it. Like if you if you had never done it, there's no way you could get what this thing is really about. So oftentimes the people that we talk to have no idea. They have nothing to share. They have no like um, experiences. That said, when we share with other teachers, typically what happens is because we're compassionate people, we're full of empathy. That's who we are as educators. But when we share how hard this is, we get into that downward spiral of, I call it toxic empathy, where like, oh my God, you wouldn't believe what Sheila did. You think Sheila's bad. Listen to what Travion did in my classroom. You think he's bad. Listen to what he did in my and now we're sitting at the table with a bunch of teachers and it is this downward spiral of negativity. Only because it feels good to realize I'm not the only one. Mm -hmm. To it's affirmed this job is insanely hard. 
and this job can be emotionally painful. And it's and I'm not crazy. It's not just me. It feels it's everybody. At the same time, we're in a downward spiral of negativity and we get addicted. It's almost as if it's like social media. You connect and identify with somebody something, you get a bit of dopamine, and it's just like scrolling, scrolling down the downward spiral of emotional despair. And so it's really difficult. It's I really believe that for us to last in this job, I really believe that it has to be scheduled. It has to be manufactured. It has to be almost forced facilitated conversations, structured conversations about how hard it is, but yet in an upward spiral direction. That's uplifting. And you, and but you know, it's so hard to do that because, you know, I, I, I liken myself to being the always glass half full guy. You know, I'm always going to look for the lesson in every failure. I'm always going to reflect on every day to determine what's going next. But when you try to share that that insight and share what you gain, when there it's it's just that it's so much negativity. Yeah. That even though you may start on an upward spiral, oh man, it goes downhill real fast. It really is. And here's the thing, dude. This is why this job is so insanely hard. There's, it's almost like a moral dilemma because, okay, I'm excited. I'm fired up. You're now at the point where let me just get my classroom so no one ruins this for me. <laughs> you know what I mean? But at the same time, it's almost as if we have a responsibility. I'm not saying other professions don't matter, but I will say this. You know, our number one employer of college graduates is Enterprise Rent-A-Car. They hire more college graduates than anybody every year. Now, if someone's having a bad day at the Enterprise Rent-A-Car and not giving effective, good customer service, you know what? I really don't care, to be honest with you. But if there's an educator in the school, in the classroom, having a bad day, and they're going to stand before our leaders of tomorrow, sitting in their classroom today, it's almost as if we have a responsibility to influence those educators as much as everyone else. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, and I'll tell you, one of the things we do at schools is um, um, we have to get away from this idea of shifting the culture of a school. You know how monumentally hard that is? And the odds of you having a principal that can pull that off, it's pretty slim. But what we can do is shift the culture of a hallway. We, you know, kids will adopt the core values of any space that they're in, like whatever's consistently held in that space. That's why you have crazy kids you see in one classroom, but then they're in yours and they're awesome sitting in the front row and, you, and, you're, and your homies with them. Mm -hmm. Dude, like that can happen with the group of four classrooms. So, you know, I always talk like just focus on you four. No matter what's going on in the school, man, this, these four classrooms right here together, some magic is going down in here, man, every day. And we're going to be at our doors at the, in between classes, hyping each other up, talking to each other, you know, you know bringing back the fun. And that's crazy. Yeah. Like, remember when you started first started teaching, like over a decade ago? Remember how fun this thing was? Dude, you know, was and, and you know, and the funny thing is, is Hal, I'll be honest with you, I am still having fun. I told Kyle this just the other day. As a 15-year veteran, I get excited when I'm at my door and my kids are walking in and they're fist bumping me, elbow yeah. bumping me. You know, some of them are doing a little side hug. They're just excited to be there. Like to me, that's the equivalent of, you know, game day. You know, I'm sitting there, you know, I'm hype, I'm hype. And when I walk in the classroom, I still love what I do. Yeah. 
I faced like the challenges of the students. That to me has not changed because those challenges you're going to always every single year. The biggest thing that's hard for me to grab is that almost the disdain other educators have for our craft. And that's like a big buzzkill, man. It's like, man, you, you, you just ruined everything, right? Like the zeal is there, the power is there, the, 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 you know, you're ready, you're intense. And then all of a sudden you just get all these little, I think John Gordon called them the energy vampires, you know, who just kind of just start slowly just trying to suck the energy yeah. from you. And like you said, I, I'm guilty of saying, okay, you know, when the tardy bell rings, I give my hallway the last look, I close my door and I engage my four walls. You know, and my kids, you know, when they're walking down the hall because they're not doing what other kids do, not leaving my room. Right. You know, because there's an expectation. And so it's like when you try to spread that around, then people think you're either trying to be cocky, you know, oh, you're trying to say, you know, more than me. You're trying to say, no, I'm saying that there's a way to do things that things can get done right for everybody. And there's a way and, not to. And it's fun and it feels and it, good and it makes a difference and it's effective. And by right. the way, this is where learning really happens. You know, I think a lot of people get caught up believing like guys like us are, you know, too, um, you know, uh, um, you know, emotional and too, you know, all in the fields and kumbaya around the campfire. Hell no. I want teachers teaching, learners learning. That's it. I'm old school, man. Mm-hmm. But what I'm saying, if that's going to happen, we really have to build a deeply emotionally connected classroom and hopefully a campus where that can happen. And then, you know, here's, I think, teachers are fueled by a few things. And primarily, the, I think the top two are, like we talked about earlier, having proof, seeing evidence that the work matters. They see the difference that's being made. When that's happening for a teacher, you never hear them complain about the art. You never hear them complain about the paperwork. You never hear them make complain because it's all worth it. Like it doesn't even cross our mind, all the other stuff that we have to do that we hate, the pay, all that nonsense, because it's so worth it. And they're making a difference and they're engaged in their classroom family and they're loving it. So all that other, all the obstacles don't come. It's when they feel like they're not making a difference. That's when we start focusing on everything else that we see as the obstacle to get to what we want. In addition to that, Dude, we're not there for the money, man. We're there not for the income, but for the impact. So we have to see the evidence of the impact. And as, as it's not superficial. People think it is. It's so not. We, it's, it's, it's the affirmation from others. It's the affirmation that, yes, you guys are doing the most honorable, important profession on the planet. The leaders of tomorrow really are. It's not a fake. The leaders of tomorrow really are in our classrooms today. It, it, it is our greatest resource as, as, a, as a planet. And feeling that it matters and hearing that respect and the affirmation from people outside, just to thank you for what you do. It, I'm telling you, it matters more than people really could ever imagine. And you're right. It's not about the pay. Because if you, like you said, if teachers feel that connection, they won't complain. Because to be honest, teacher pay has been subpar since the beginning. You knew what it was when you got it. <laughs> when you when you when you checked that box in college, yeah, you knew exactly you knew. <laughs> what the starting salary was. You didn't it was funny. Taxes, so you're kind of shocked when you saw the first paycheck. Like, I remember when I was in college. 
I stayed away from an education major because when they were talking about it, it said the average pay for an educator at that time was like twenty eight thousand. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm not going to college to come out and make twenty eight thousand dollars a year. Like I can do that today at the Best Buy. I can go work at McDonald's. And I had friends at McDonald's as a manager, you know, who we started working fast food together in high school. Like he's a manager now out of school. No college, and he's already making thirty thousand dollars a year. So you're saying go to college right. and make twenty? Come on, man. No, <laughs> I'm still I'll here. tell you what, dude. I'll tell you, <laughs> here's the story. I have is um, I was in Louisiana. I was talking to an elementary teacher, and she went to LSU. I forget. She rang up eighty or ninety thousand dollars of debt, and now she's in the lowest paying state of fifty making and this is recently brother she's still making in the 30s or like i know here in houston and aldine i think you're going to start around 60 so she's yeah, making close. somewhere just over half of that and um and I, I was coming back from that gig and i'm coming to my house and i get a flat tire and i don't know where you live in houston but i live like just outside of 610 on shepherd and we got flat tire places everywhere right mm-hmm. pull up. and so i pull up and a guy comes out and you don't have to get out of the car they come out, they jack up your car, and he says, it'll be $5. I said, okay, and he's and he's fixing the flat, you know, he's patching it. He goes, actually got two holes, it's gonna be $10. I go, okay, cool. And um, and I'm looking at this car's lined up behind me. I'm looking, and it's just in front of his house, right? And I go, hey man, come here. I go, how many of these you do a day? He goes, a day? I don't know, 70 or 80? And I'm thinking $5 cash, 70. Or, he goes, but on the weekends, we'll, you know, we'll do a couple hundred a day on the weekends. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this dude is making $125,000, $150,000 a year in cash, patching tires. I just talked to a lady that went to school for five years and rang up $80,000 of debt that she'll never pay off, making a difference in the lives of kids. Do you know what I mean? Like the money thing is just so, that's why I'm saying if, you're, if, you're, if your heart isn't 100% into the calling of an educator, you, you're going to see a situation like that and think, what am I doing? He's changing flats. It's about doing what you love. Yeah, man. Like that's what you love. And that's that's a hard thing, you know, to I kept reminding my student teacher. I had her tell me, I said, when did you realize that you wanted to be a teacher? And we said that was our first meeting. And she told me about when she was in pre-K and you know, she got to school and she met her teacher and she came home and she instantly knew right then and there at four years old, I want to be a teacher. And it never changed. And I told her, no matter how rough it gets remember that four-year-old's vision and realize that you lived your entire life to accomplish this thing. So don't lose that. Yes. Here's the thing, man. Dude, it's those three that we talk. Like, if you're going to survive, and not just survive, I hate that word. If you're going to thrive right now, and by the way, this is the time to do it. Like, if you signed up to make a difference in the life of a kid, there's never been a better time. Kids are struggling more than ever. Is it harder? Hell yeah. Yeah. I'm not, but I'm not, I don't even know if changing a kid's life is supposed to be easy. I don't think so. It's probably supposed to be hard. (laughs) It's supposed to be this hard. I probably not, but this is what it is because they're up against so much and struggling so much. And this is what it is. But for me, man, like for a teacher to really thrive, whether, but I don't know if they can do it by themselves. I don't know if that's possible. It isn't for me, but to, to, to connect with the group of other teachers and every, every day you have to talk about, what do I really want for this kid? Like, what's the real lesson of my classroom? If I could have anything for my kids, what would it be? As a result of them spending their lives with me, I'm the most important adult that they have right now. It's me. What do I want for that kid? 
because it's, te- it's so frustrating because we know these kids, they all have access to the information on their phone. Like the, there's nothing that we can teach them they can't find right now. <laughs> so we have to decide what's the lesson that the kid can't get on the phone that's going to serve as a legacy for this kid's family. And this is what this kid is going to teach their own kids and the next generation. What do we want the last, that lasting lesson? That, what is the what? The why? Why do we keep coming back? Like we, we're the most, we're the most agreed people on the planet. We could do anything right now. We could go replace this income today. If we had to, if we had, it might mean it not be a job we love, but it was, but if we, if we had to, we could, we could do it today in any area. Why do we come back and dig down into the deepest why possible? And then I believe, you know, I know Simon Sinek stops with the why. That's his thing. Everything starts and stops. I think it's a deeper thing for teachers. I would argue with that, dude. I would take it to the great. Dude, we have to talk about not just the why, but who do we need to be? Because you can have the great what and really focus and connect it with your why. But, okay, who do I need to be to make that happen? If that's really going to happen in my classroom, like, dude, I can tell you, I sit down with a lot of teachers and unbelievable what's and won't get emotional. And I cry listening to how, why they're here and how much of an impact they want to make. But then I'm looking, I'm thinking, well, that's not you. Like you're, you're not, you're not walking the walk. You, you talk about it, but that's not who you are. So the question is, who do I need to be? If I, if, 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 if I want my kids to be um, courageous, do I demonstrate that every day of my life? But, you know, for them to be it, they have to see it. I got to show it if I'm going to grow it in the kid. If I want my kids to, you know, have a level of self-respect, that, do, do I model what that looks like? Are they soaking that up for me? All those things that we really want for a kid, we have to be that so they can see that. And that, man, that we, Kyle always says, we, we talked about this, you know, with kids, what do I have to become? And I think a lot of people think that, oh, you're being fake. I'm like, no, I don't I don't consider it being fake. I consider it like a transcendence. Because if you're not multifaceted, you know, they tell you the fastest way to get rich is to have multiple streams of income. The fastest way to build relationships is to be multifaceted, to understand that I can I'm multidimensional. I'm not just three dimensional. I can I can carry my weight in everything. So that means you have to kind of be versed in everything, which means I have to know me. You know, that's one of the first questions I, ask, I tell teachers. If you don't know who you are, there's no way you're going to teach a kid to, to, to find out who they are. So true. You're, you're not. You're not. And yesterday I wrote down, we were having a staff development, and I wrote down that you cannot get above average results from below average people. And so before we start trying to say, I want my teachers to be here academic data-wise, you got to ask yourself, what am I doing to help my teacher? themselves as a human to become above average what am i doing to help them grow themselves up so they see themselves differently than i'm just a teacher yeah you know the argument we had yesterday someone sometimes you just got to cut it off i was like when i was on vacation i found playing with a group of nine ten and eleven year olds and having a conversation with them that was so engaging and the mom was like i'm so sorry they're bothering you. i say they're not my wife's like oh he's a teacher she goes no but you're on vacation I see teachers never on vacation. <laughs> I say, because if I was a firefighter and there was smoke coming from a building across the street, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to spring into action because that's what I know. 
Yeah. Not saying that I'm going to work all day long, but when the work comes to me, I'm going to engage it because I'm a teacher. That's what I do. And it's not work for me. It's like, this is, this is what I love. Yeah. Good morning, everybody. Welcome back to the ABCs of Inspired Teaching. Um, this is the first half of a conversation we had with our friend Hal Bowman. Um, he is a former teacher, um, professional development facilitator, conference host, author, all of those different kind of things. Um, just has a really interesting perspective on education. A guy we um, have talked to a couple times on the podcast, but um, brought him back on to just talk about what it's been like over the last couple of years trying to facilitate you know, virtual trainings versus in-person, what it's been like to be back with people and, you know, what he's seeing and hearing from teachers across the country. So um, we hope you enjoy this first part. Um, next week, we'll put the second part out, but um, trying to be consistent, trying to get these things posted um, in a timely manner. So please forgive us, give us a little grace that we haven't been as consistent as we would like to be, but we're working on it. So we hope you enjoy this episode. Have a great week.